This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. Joining me, as always, is the president of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what's going on, brother? Hey, I made it through. Uh, it, it, it was my uh, first semester of doctoral studies. Um, yeah, it's been a and- rough week for you from what I hear, man. Holy smokes. One of those things where anything that can go wrong did go wrong. But yeah, Murphy's Law situation. That's right. That's right. But I know you and some others were praying for me. So I'm grateful for that. Now I just have to finish grading final exams for a class I, I, I help with with and uh, and then I'll have a Christmas break coming up. So maybe wow, 2016. Are you test grading too? Hold up. Hold up. So you are an official academic. You're not just taking doctoral classes, but you're grading papers. Grading yeah. I'm tests. A- I'm a TA right now, so you, you get all <laughs> you get all the grunt work, uh, but it's a good experience. It's been it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome, man. So, any big holiday plans? We always go up to visit my wife's parents, and so uh, what I always look forward to. They live in the St. Louis area, and we go and get barbecue. So, I'm looking forward to some great barbecue over the break. How about you? That sounds great, but it's too cold, Doc. Like right now in Pensacola, it's about 40 degrees and we're all freaking out and we're like, what is happening? You know, last year at Christmas Eve and the Christmas season during that time period, I kid you not, it was 70 degrees. Oh, it was 70 degrees. We had to use our AC two days before Christmas. I'm telling you, man, it's nuts. So so now we're just in a situation of trying to adjust to the cold. But um, now, man, because Christmas falls on a Sunday, we always actually historically just always stay home for Christmas. So we're always in the area. And I think in one of the next few years, my wife and I will probably break that tradition. So we'll probably take a trip to someplace, you know, like next Jackson, year. Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great vacation destination. <laughs> um, so hey, we might no. do that or 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 New York or, or something like that. But this year it's just chill. Plus Christmas falls on a Sunday. So it's a work day for me. So I will be with the body of believers fellowshipping. Amen. I hope I hope I hope all of us are. That's good. That's it's fun that it does fall on a Sunday and we get to worship with the household of of God. That's right, man. Listen, I just want to give a a brief shout out to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for reaching out to us, for leaving reviews and and rating us on iTunes. We have had some great encouragement. I just want to read a couple of these reviews every week. We say we're going to do this next week or the week after, and we don't get around to it. So I want to give a shout out to the people who are leaving reviews and giving us positive feedback. One in particular is Old School Mama. That's your username on (laughs) iTunes, which I love that name. I don't know who you are. (laughs) But I love that name. So you get props just for that. But she says, I love this show. I found the show about a year ago when looking for an African-American Christ Center podcast. The hosts are intelligent, which always gets you extra points, brownie points, if you call us intelligent. And uh, the hosts are intelligent (laughs) and humble servants of Christ. They have been an oasis to me during this past year. Thank you so much. That really encourages us. Also, would like to give a shout out to 
uh, B. McKay, uh, she says, or he or she says, Pastor Mike has opened up a new world to me. The hosts are brilliant, charitable guys that anyone should be eager to learn from, and their guests are experts in a wide range of areas. I'm better equipped to listen humbly and discuss tough issues because of this podcast. Again, we're not reading it because they said positive things about us, but we are reading it because they said positive things about the podcast. Thank you, guys. Those are very humble words, um, words that make us very humble, and it, it makes us very grateful to, to be speaking to such a great audience week in, week out. Continue to download the podcast. Reach out to us and give us feedback on Twitter. Our show handles at underscore Pastor Mike. Again, you can follow me at Burns23. You can follow Jamar Tisby at Jamar Tisby. Reach out to us. Ask us questions. Give us ideas. We are wide open for that. Correct, Jamar? Absolutely. And I also want to shout out, uh, we've been getting an increased number of donations. I don't know because it's the holiday season, people are feeling generous or they just really realize how much they love hearing Tyler week in and week out. Um, actually, I think Bo, Bo gave us a big, big jump uh, by just putting the links in uh, with the podcast. But I do want to thank uh, the folks who have been donating via the website. It massively helps us. We're we're yes. planning for 2017, and so hopefully you will see us um, in your area, whether at a conference or something like that. It's also helping our, our back-end infrastructure, being able to do some things with the website, uh, hopefully getting to a point where we can actually um, give some remuneration for the talents of, of people like like Tyler and Bo, who produces the show. They volunteer for this. I mean, they just they believe in the mission, and... Uh, I am so grateful. This could not happen without them. And so everyone who's supporting us financially, putting your money where your mouth is, that's you're, you're helping the mission, you're helping the cause, and you're helping real people. Thank you. Absolutely. Also want to give a brief shout out, and I know we've given a number of these, but want to give a brief shout out to a man named Matthew who reached out to us and describes himself, very interestingly enough, as a white atheist um, and Marxist and also an anti-racist organizer. And so he reached out to us um, on Twitter and said, hey, I really appreciate the podcast. I'm learning some things, interacted with us a little bit. That honestly blew me away. And he did that about wow. a month ago and I haven't had the chance to mention it on the podcast. But Matthew, if you're listening, thanks so much for hearing our perspective as Christian men and as Christian leaders and as people of faith. It it's encouraging to hear that you would give us an ear, and we hope that you continue listening and that you're continually encouraged. So thank you so much. We're just blown away always. We cannot say that enough to the Pastor Mike family and everyone who listens. Thank you guys so much. Okay, so Jamar, it is the Advent season, but it's also a tumultuous time within the, the course of our country. So I think one of the things that we wanted to talk about today and the main topic is just some of the safe havens that we found in the midst of these tumultuous times. And what are some of the safe havens that you have found in particular? I've got one in particular that we're going to talk about for a while. But for you, what are some of the safe havens that you found in the midst of these times as the tumultuous year of 2016 comes to an end? Uh, great question. Great question. I think we, we've got to always be thinking about self-care, especially, I don't know, maybe it's me. I don't know if other people feel this way. Um, the last quarter of this year has felt extremely stressful, um, whether it's with the it's election, not just you. It's not just you. <laughs> you know, the deaths of, of, of so many people um, in the news that, that have been loved, beloved um, uh, or just a big part of the American story. John Glenn just passed away, you know. Oh, um, man, man. So so all of this stuff, it, we've got to constantly be thinking about this. So uh, a couple of things. One is very simple, but 
usually that means you should say it more often, not less. It was this week when I was doing final exams, I had to get off of social media completely. So I didn't post anything. Um, I didn't look at it very much. I checked just to see, you know, it's like, it's like my morning news, but, um, that was incredible. <laughs> uh, it was incredibly helpful to focus on the here and now, focus just on where I was physically. And so um, I didn't have to be, you know, I didn't have to try to have the emotional fortitude to carry the burdens of events happening happening literally across the state, the nation, and the world. And so that was helpful because I think, um, you know, God made us limited, finite beings, and we're not supposed to be able to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. That's his job. And uh, it was nice to to actually, um, and I had to get accountability. You <laughs> helped me and uh, made sure that that I, I, I was not posting anything or distracting myself from the job I had to get done. But it just really helped to step back and only be concerned about what I could actually influence for once. So that right. was, that was good. What about you? Man, I'll say this. And, and I mentioned this in a, a little bit of a, a Twitter storm tweet storm, I guess is what they call it. Um, that I, I, I had earlier this week, but man, when we're talking about hope in the midst of darkness, safe havens in the midst of tumultuous times, I cannot leave out the black church. Amen. We recognize that the church universal and the entire ecclesia of of God's called out people, as it specifically says in the text, is a a gift and a blessing to us, the household of faith, the body of believers. So I'm not making this distinction out of some sort of ethnocentrism or some sort of black supremacy. But what I will say is, as I was looking at the Walter Scott decision that came down Mm, mm. and... um, Can you do a quick recap? Sure. So the police officer, I believe his name is Michael Slager. He uh, shot and killed Walter Scott, shot him in the back, and it was caught on videotape last year. It was about six days before I got married, interestingly enough. And I remember going into that entire wedding season and process, and it was a week out. And I remember being so distraught and saddened to see that. But for most people, it was seen to be a open and shut case that Slager would be convicted of some sort of crime and would be put away. I've actually talked to pastors who locally would disagree with many of the things that I say as it relates to justice and the justice ethic within the broad scope of redemptive, or the emphasis, I'll say, not disagree with with what the Bible says, but disagree with maybe how I interpret some words or what I say or and they're charitable in their disagreements, but even even a couple of them have brought up to me that in the Walter Scott case, it's open and shut. It's it's easy. It's easy. We can all agree on this because there was a crime that was committed. Also uh, on the videotape, he planted evidence, apparently tried to plant evidence, and then also lied in the preceding uh, report, uh, lied in the report that came afterwards. So a lot of different things that have happened. But but anyway, what, what came down originally was that there was one juror that was undecided and was unable to give a guilty verdict. And then from there, now it's come out that there have been other jurors who are also undecided, something that is uh, very difficult for us to understand. So it led to a mistrial. So Slager walks free, and then there's going to be, I believe, a capital trial uh, that is going to be happening here in the future, scheduled, I believe, for next year. 
So in the midst of all that, one of the things that captured the evangelical world and the Christian world, and really even on the broader level, the society by storm was his mother, Walter Scott's mother, Judy Scott. And she came on in a press conference immediately following the decision for a mistrial. And her faith was unbelievable. Her her expression of gospel truth, of confidence, joy in the midst of pain, her refusal to give into despair and discouragement and doubt was, for many people, a profound example of the Christian faith. But one of the things that I I wanted to, and, and for myself as well, I don't want to minimize that. One of the things that I wanted to point out was not that her stand was unremarkable, because by any stretch of the imagination, it is remarkable, but that it's the historic norm that is found within the Black church. One of the things that I said is it's important to note that this type of unshakable faith is the historic norm within the Black church, not the exception. It's literally our heritage, that there are many examples of the Black black resilience, Black prophetic resistance, and also Black human resilience that have endured across centuries within this country that many people have endured heinous crimes and discrimination and bigotry in the week. And then on the weekend, on Sunday morning, they would get dressed up to the nines. They would wear (laughs) their their three-piece suit, their Sunday best. They would put on their hat and they would go into the house of the Lord. And for a long time, for hours, as a safe haven and a refuge from the tumult that they would endure as soon as they left those four walls, they praised God. They listened to the word. They gave testimonies. They prayed for each other. They cried. They laughed. This is part of the historic legacy of the Black church. And one of the things that I I try to communicate to people is that these sorts of incidents and situations are not foreign. They're not new. They're not novel. But I know people throughout the entirety of our congregation that I could point to and say, if you knew what they had been through, if you had experienced half of what they've gone through, if you knew what they lost, who they lost, how they lost them. My former barber right now is going through a situation where he lost one of his best friends, his wife, and his right-hand man in the barbershop in three weeks. Wow. Back to back to back. His wife first, then his right-hand man in the barbershop, who was one of my friends, who was not very much older than me, a young father, a, a young leader in the community. And then lost his longtime, one of his best friends, who's in another state, all in the space of three weeks. And he's still coming to work. He's still serving his community. He's still trying to uplift the young man. Doesn't mean he's reacting perfectly in every stretch, in every way. Absolutely not. But there's something built into his DNA that says it's not over yet. Yes. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give out. I will put one foot in front of the other and God will keep me. He'll keep, he'll be the lifter of my head. What, What do we say? We will look unto the hills from whence comes our help. Our help comes from the Lord. Mm. You know, that is, that is the historic legacy, right? I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, one, it deserves quoting Walter Scott's mother um, after the trial. So, so this is right after uh, the 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 verdict came back um, that the jury was hung and there was a mistrial. First of all, the lawyer comes out 
family attorney Chris Stewart says, if you thought we were going to come out crying, weeping, weak, then you don't know the family. That was round one. Slager may have delayed justice, but he did not escape it. And so, so one, uh, the, the family attorney is saying, you know, this does not defeat us. This does not sweep the, the, the legs out from under us and plant us on our backs without hope. Uh, then you hear actually from Judy Scott, Michael Scott's mother, and she says that, that it was a, her religious faith that gave her the strength to endure this whole trial. And then at the end, when the mistrial comes out, she says, it's not over. Y'all hear me? It's not over till God says it's over. Mm. And she, she goes on to say, we have a federal trial and another trial. I'm just waiting on the Lord. And then she mm. said, um, one, of, one of Scott's brothers said, we're going to trust God. We're not going to tear up the city. We're going to trust God. So the whole family, right? Like uh, certainly Judy Scott, <laughs> a mother losing her child. I mean, who, who can understand that kind of pain and to be able to come out and saying, it's not over. We're waiting on the Lord. Um, all of these things. And this is one of the things, this is how the black church has been the, the, the ark of refuge uh, for, for our people for generations. And, and my personal opinion is, um, there's no one black community. There's no one black experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we do, there is something that binds us together in this nation. And it's a very painful past of race-based chattel slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, uh, systemic racism, all of these kinds of things that have and continue to affect us do bind us together in a web of experiences that are, are, are unique because of, of the way they've played out in terms of skin color. And when you take that and put it in a church context, um, it becomes what, what God does is he redeems that pain. Uh, when you come together in faith, and re rely and trust on the Lord, yes. he, takes, he takes this experience of a broken and fallen world, and he turns it around. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's not sinful and dark. What it does mean is that, it, like Judy Scott said, uh, it's not over. And I think that's one of the things that is most compelling about believing in an omnipotent God. Because if the only thing we had to trust and rely on in this world was what human beings did in terms of justice, Come on, Doc. Preach. We, would, we would be completely lost. Uh, but for African-Americans, particularly in, in the United States, uh, because we didn't have power in terms of the law, there was a long time where we couldn't even testify in court. Our, our testimony would not count. There was a long time where we couldn't vote. There's a long time where we couldn't be in anything but a, a entry-level position in jobs. We did not have worldly forms of power. So what are you gonna do in that case? Your only two choices are roll over and not have any hope, give in to despair because you can't yeah. do anything about it. And you literally could not do anything about it that would not get you killed or mm -hmm. lose your job and get you starving. Or you can believe in a God who cares who's there and who will one day right every wrong, wipe every tear yeah. and where there will be no more mourning. So, man, you're right. And we found that in the black church. 
Yeah. And and this is important to point out that this sort of resilience is not just a spiritual, it's not just a spiritual thought process. It's not just some mental ascent, but it is a fully embodied experience. It is not just what we think and what we say, but it is our emotions. It is our actions. It is our resistance. It is what Dr. King called the redemptive suffering, the, 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 the redemptive nature of suffering openly and publicly in front of people, m- mirroring the image of Christ who was killed in public who was lifted high, who was made a spectacle of, that if Christ redeems the world through this, not just obviously we understand the the idea of the atonement, but also through this open show important in that, that redemptive suffering. It's another thing that we saw in Charleston, in Charleston, South Carolina, when uh, Charleston AME Church, okay, so you have Clementa Pinckney in at the particular AME Church that Dylan Roof went and shot up. And interestingly enough, that is another church that is going through a trial right now. That is another situation that has a current trial um, for Dylan Roof, and he's representing himself and all kinds of craziness that's going on there. But what we see is that the family looks at Dylan Roof and says, we forgive you. Now, again, you have to understand, people were saying, what an amazing show of forgiveness. I've never seen Christians like this. The reality is, that church has been through so much historically that you wouldn't know if you didn't do the history on that church. That church has been threatened. That church has received bomb threats. That church has has been um, a, a victim of the oppression of the state back when segregation was legalized. That church was oppressed and systematically targeted targeted for teaching people to read. Again, we wouldn't know that. We would have no idea of that if we do not study the history. And one of the things that I'm finding is very important for the church at large, especially in America, is to study marginalized groups. And one of the marginalized groups that we see within the history of the American society is the Black church. How did we react during marginalization? It's funny, I was reading this book recently by Henry Mitchell, and he talks about the story of a church that called a pastor to service. So they said, we want you to come and be our, be our pastor. But the problem was he was a slave. Right? So this is in the 1800s. He was a slave. Wow. And so what they did is two cousins who were deacons within the church, I believe. What they said is this, we will go into, they were freemen. We will go into slavery for you and we will work off your slave debt so that you can come, we will take your place as slaves so that you can come and be the pastor of our church. So we will literally trade our freedom for slavery that we do, it's not even ours, it's your slavery. So you can be, so our church can have a qualified, gospel-centered, spirit-filled pastor to come and take that position. That's, that's unbelievable. (laughs) But that is the heritage and the tradition and the history that many of us come from. So when we're talking about the black church, we're not just speaking of these dudes here. We're not just speaking of good vibes and feelings. We're talking about a resilience that can only come from a transcendent, omnipotent, triune God. So, so let's, let's talk about, I want to, I want to talk about two things, but I want to say it before I forget. Let's talk about the trope of the black church. 
All right. Well, let's come back to that. But before we do that, I want to bring out for because I know we got a lot of, you know, the, theology nerds out there. So maybe maybe this will put it in a language that kind of vibes with them. Yeah, and, you got to do that. Come on, Mass. Use that. No, use that. Man, come on, let's go. It ain't from me. I'm biting this. I'm biting this from Carl Ellis. Um, Dr. Carl Ellis, uh, when he gave this framework, it was so helpful for me as an African-American studying theology. He decides of the theological yes. coin. Side and A, so, side B. Come on, break it down. Side A, side B. And so he calls one side the, the cognitive epistemological side, and the other side he calls the um, intuitive ethical side. Now, both sides of the coin represent different but equally valid modes of applying God's word to issues and questions. Now, the cognitive epistemological side of theology tends to be written. It uses propositions to convey concepts. It emphasizes precision and doctrine, focuses oftentimes on matters of, of personal piety and individual identity. And that's one side of the coin. That, that When you pick up a systematic theology textbook, typically that's what's happening. Also, when you talk about uh, people coming from a culturally dominant perspective, they're in the center. A lot of times the way they do theology, what they talk about is from the cognitive and epistemological side. On the other side, and this is where the black church has sprung up from, is the ethical intuitive side. And this tends to be more oral and thematic, metaphorical. Um, it focuses on on living rightly in in addition to knowing rightly. Yes. So that, that yes. the ethical side is is put is, is you know cognitive and um, epistemological is orthodoxy, uh, ethical and intuitive is orthopraxy. Not that yes. you can separate the two. Um, I don't mean to imply that, but if you make a distinction, uh, this focuses on living rightly, how you're acting towards your neighbors, and it taps into themes of of justice and suffering and all those kinds of things. So, so this is why we need a diverse church, is because parts of the church have done really well on the cognitive and epistemological side, and we should take that and we should run with that, and and that shows us in many ways how to live. On the other hand, especially, especially, this is we've got to highlight this and underline it. For people who are marginalized, they experience injustice. Well, guess what? They have the better perspective on what it looks like to live rightly and correct those particular wrongs. I'm right. not saying in, in every situation. Right, but absolutely. They, they do have a perspective for, just put it concretely, black folks have a perspective on racism that people who are white may not have. And that doesn't right. mean you can't understand. It doesn't mean you can't sympathize, empathize, and be an ally. But it does mean that when you have somebody who's part of a people who have historically experienced this kind of injustice, they're going to they're, they're going to have a perspective that's going to be helpful for you. And then they put it put it back into the church. What that means is when folks who are marginalized and experiencing this kind of oppression go to the Bible, they're asking God, "How do we endure? Yes. How do we?" bear up under this suffering. And that's the ethical, intuitive theology that arises out from the black church that gives us a, a preaching style that is powerful, uh, that gets to the fact that Monday through Saturday, you had to endure all yes. kinds of assaults on your identity, on your image of godness. And you have to hear in that sermon a word that will literally allow you to physically survive the next week. Uh, it gets to the way we praise and worship. 
when all week long you've had to hold in your true emotions and your true expressions and you get to the one place where you can let it out. Uh, yes. And, and it would seem so expressive that to some people who aren't in that situation, it was over the top. But for the people yes. who were, it was like, this is the only time I could do it. You don't get it. I've been holding it <laughs> for a week. And, right? and, and also, that's why they dress up. Well, we yes. dress up because well, it's the place where we are most dignified. It is the yeah. place where we can come and be ourselves. And also, that's why church took so long. <laughs> because why would you want to rush out to a place, right? Like, why would you want to leave? Like, and people have made this, this, you know, this, this observation before, but that's why so many of these, these traditions that we find within the black church shouldn't be so easily thrown over the Come edge here. Come on. We shouldn't easily throw it, uh, you know, the baby out with the bathwater here. Some of them are rooted in just you know, personal emotionalism and others of them have deep meaning as far as coping with suffering, coping with the intensity of their lives, coping with oppression. That's right. That's right. And again, this is this is all historical, traditional reality. Right. And and this is this is, I think, what happens when you're in a position where you experience some sort of injustice, some sort of marginalization, not as an occasional thing, but as an ongoing reality. Uh, the reality is we all come to the Bible with questions. And for folks, especially African-Americans throughout most of U.S. history, when we went to the Bible, it was about finding hope in an environment where everywhere you looked was despair. Uh, yes. And that was a daily thing. It wasn't occasional like when a relative dies or you lose your job. That was that was every day. I mean, lynchings, the, the effectiveness of lynching wasn't just the actual event itself. It was the possibility of it. It was the randomness of the yeah, act. The psychological effect. The psychological effect that if you stepped out of line, which is what happened to Emmett Till, you give inappropriate attention to a white woman as a young black man and the wrong people catch wind of it, you could end up dead. Now that didn't only affect Emmett Till and his family or the very small community of Money, Mississippi. That affected any African-American, men and women, the men who knew you can't say that, you can't even look, mm -hmm. right? Because you could put your life at risk. The women, who every time one of their loved ones who's a man stepped out of the door knew he might not be coming back. And it was capricious. You know, you couldn't predict it. So, so when you have that kind of reality, the kind of issues that you're concerned with, the kind of theology that you do, it's going to look different than if you're not in that position. And that's, I just, I highlight that because I think that's one of the things that will help us understand each other in different branches of the church um, by ethnicity and by experience, whether it's a, a Korean church, whether it's a, a mostly white church, whether it's a, a, a church of mostly Latinos, we've got to understand the context out of which each of our people are arising and yes. understand that that's going to affect how, what questions we're asking of God, what prayers we're, get, we're, we're offering up, how we worship. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. That's right. the crux of it. And, and, and just to point out, it's not to 
hold up a superior version of church. Like we're not that's saying right, that's right. our version of church is superior or someone else's version of church is. That's not we're we're not comparing. We shouldn't think of it as a term of superiority inferiority, but we should think of it as a term of contribution, and we should that's think good. of it as a term of centering. Right, that many times we have centered particular church experiences unknowingly, not even knowing that this was the exclusion or you know, the pushing away of a marginalized experience and ethic that could enrich and could encourage our present position as Christians, because we are not the majority anymore. And even if we think that we are, culture is moving shift, uh, is shifting and moving very quickly. Yeah. And, and so I, I, our ideas, our ideas should be informed by that marginalized experience. Yeah. And I appreciate your, your uh, framing that because I definitely don't want to say this is this is a better way of doing church or anything like that. Like I said earlier, it argues for the necessity of diversity within the body um, because God didn't gift um, complete knowledge of the Bible to any one particular people group. Um, he gave us the body so that we could build one another up. And part of that building up comes from understanding his word uh, out of a different sort of set of redemptive experiences. Yes. Um, I mean, we all share the redemptive experience of Christ and him redeeming us individually uh, and as the household of God. But we also inhabit different places, um, different times, and that's going to teach us, that's going to instruct us. So it values yes the way that, that God is weaving a complex narrative throughout all of history. And, and woe to us if we discount um, the, the church uh, context and yes. the theology arising out of a tradition. And, and always we have our filter on, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking carefully at orthodoxy because it's important. We're looking carefully at, you know, we're testing. Is what you're saying lining up with Scripture? And not all of it does. But I do say this because I think the tendency is that um, when it comes to church, we say, and like you said, we might do this unconsciously or subconsciously, the tendency is to think if it's different, it's wrong. Yes. And that's or, not always Or that it's—and and talk about these tropes here. What are the tropes that we find within people kind of peering into the Black church— not understanding its history, not understanding its its legacy, not understanding any of its practices. What are some of the dangers of these tropes, and what are what do what do some of these skeptical outlooks sound like? So I think the you're going to be. I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say as a pastor in a black church. Um, but when I brought up the idea of tropes, what I'm actually sort of agitated by is is how uh, black folks, and a lot of times black folks who aren't really even actively involved in a church, how they're portraying the black church. Uh, I mean, you can see this in, in the media. You know, you look at any of these, any of these movies that, that come out and have a black church scene, it's always the same thing, right? It's always uh, ladies in, in big hats. It's this banging gospel choir. It's this preacher. Right. And obviously there are certain characteristics of that, that that you could say fairly characterize the black church. But I think what has happened since the civil rights movement, this is a bigger conversation, but um, what, what happens is some people really discount the black church as still potent in our day. 
as still having an important place. And so what it, what happens is the, the black church devolves in their mind to just this set of kind of stereotypes that are honestly, at the end of the day, kind of insulting, um, yes. if that's where you remain. So, you know, I, I constantly try to kind of nudge folks who are African-American but may not be really involved in the church and may want to sort of write off the black church because they don't see a Martin Luther King or Ralph Abernathy. They don't see uh, black churches getting involved like they uh, perceived they were involved during the 20, 20th century civil rights movement. And so they're right. like, y'all just step to the side. You know, we love what you did before, but we got to move on. And they don't they just remember it as as pretty, you know, pretty trite. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great point. I think, and you were probably talking about the scene from Diary of a Mad Black Woman, weren't you? With that Tyler Perry movie? That's what you were talking about. <laughs> Man, one of many, but <laughs> nah, for that, I remember that. Because that song was fire. Like, you can't deny, like, that song, that Father Can You Hear Me, that was really good. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> you know, just had to throw that out there on a musical note, you know, it was, it was really, it was really dope. But I think what a lot of people fail to see is that it's very easy to say something is irrelevant without understanding the history of how it's existed, that how do we judge relevance? And many people, they judge relevance by what is popular, what is trending, by what they seem to be, what they seem to believe is enlightened. And I think a lot of people would say, and it's kind of the Umar Johnson mentality, where he would say that the black church is what's holding black people back, right? The black church wow. is stealing your money and the black church is not doing anything in the community and the black church isn't helping the people. And it's a total ignorance of history. And the ignorance of history is that the black church has been responsible for so much behind the scenes that does not get the press that other churches have done. And, and still we're is. talking about, and still is doing. And so when we're talking about drug and alcohol rehabilitation, we're talking about tutoring services. We're talking about very basically caring for orphans and widows. All these things still happen. And what I, I would challenge people to do is not just to do the history. I mean, there's some great books, The History of the Negro Church by Carter G. Woodson, um, some books by C. Eric Lincoln, The African-American Church, uh, The Black Experience of the, Af the Black Church and the African-American Experience, um, all kinds of great books that show the history of the Black church in America. But then also, I would challenge you to get outside of your box, your bubble, because there are very likely churches right around the corner from you or in proximity to you that are still faithfully doing the same things they've been doing for 50 to 100 years. And you would never know it because we just pass by that church and they're like, oh, that's a small church. Or yeah, I know those people who go there, but we don't reach out and actually sit down and listen to them. We're not listening to their sermons because they're not easily podcastable. <laughs> you know, we're not listening yeah. to their pastors because they haven't written, you know, best-selling multi-million dollar books. I mean, we're, we're just not doing this. And they're, they're typically right around the corner from us. And it's the mentality and the idea that the black church is doing so much to encourage and uplift the people around it, even from scholarships, um, from, from health fairs, from we're talking about relationships between their parishioners and police. I and mean, I'll give you, I'll give man. you a concrete, a concrete, very mundane example. Uh, it, 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 when I was in seminary, there were uh, several. I mean, 
African-American students who were first-generation college, first-generation graduate school, everything, struggling to make ends meet. One of them uh, didn't have a laptop, which in this day and age, as a, as a grad student, I mean, it's, it's extremely inconvenient. Uh, the assumption is that you do have one, but didn't have one, couldn't afford one. A black missionary Baptist church, teeny tiny, I'm talking maybe 40 members, maybe, uh, pooled their money, anonymously donated a laptop to this student. Wow. And, and can you imagine just the difference that makes? Now, wow. churches do this, you know, lots of churches across the color line do this thing, kind of thing all the time. Absolutely. But it, it gets back to what you were saying earlier about this sort of otherworldly generosity, even though you're facing your own difficulties and troubles, right? Like yes. this is not a wealthy church. So so it's like the widow's might, right? Uh, somebody may give more money, but she gave out of her poverty. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And yes. so out of their poverty, they still were able to collect this money and get this to, because they believed in what this student was doing. And that that happens to your point, all the time, and but they don't make trust the headlines, me. right? Oh you know? my goodness, trust me. I mean, there there are dozens of stories of generosity that would come out of nowhere, that I wouldn't even know where it came from. In my own life, in the lives of people around me, that I've seen people on our staff do, that I've seen pastoral um, ministers uh, give out of abundance, not looking for the spotlight, not looking to be highlighted. But just looking to be a blessing to someone, you and know? you got, and you've got to, you've got to situate that the black church has always been that, right? It's, yes. it's, it's the oldest community organization, and that's it. That's it's a community. Had. That's that's, that's right. the key. It's yeah. the community idea. It's not just the individual. Okay, okay well, I'm going to do something nice from. No, that's family. That's family. We are one. We're a community. We're that's all right. in this together. We have and, to help each other out. And there were there were so many throughout most of our history, we didn't have anywhere else to go. We couldn't go to the government. We couldn't go to the law. We couldn't go to anywhere else to find the kind of aid and support that we needed. So where did we go? We went to the church, which is what all Christians do anytime when that's the case. Uh, but in particular, when you talked about the black church and the American experience, man, it has been that, and and what you're arguing, and I completely agree with, it still is that. And we've got a generation of post-civil rights African-Americans um, who don't, I don't know, I don't know what the issue is, if we don't know our history or, or if they're just not Christian or, or what, but we have a generation of folks who is appreciating the place of the black church as community, as support, much less and I think part of that is because we do have broader access to other forms of support, um, yeah. whether it's it's in our jobs, whether it's in law or policy or whatever. That's great. And that's what we're pushing for and fighting for more of. At the same time, <laughs> you don't discount your foundation. You don't right. throw away what got you there. Yeah. Part of it is that we made it, you know, in a lot of in a lot of people's minds, we made it. Yeah, you know, we, we achieved and if you personally achieve, it kind of numbs you to the concerns of the entirety of the community. And if you're not living around the corner from the church, and if you're not struggling, or if you're not in the place where you actually need from the church, where you feel like you know more than people within the church. Um, so a lot of it is is youth. It kind of gives us this perspective. And it's a perspective that very candidly I had for years, that, man, people don't know what they're doing. 
What are they talking about? And it, it took me getting into ministry in my local context to find out there's a lot going on. I was incredibly arrogant to think that I would know more than the people around me. You know, that youthful ignorance of what what it's taken for them to get to this place. It's funny, and we'll wrap up with this. I, you know, when I was 16 years old, the first time I was ever involved in a funeral, it was a young boy at our church, and his name was Gideon. And Gideon was seven years old. And I remember playing around mm. with, with Gideon and one Sunday, and we were just laughing and joking. And he was a part of a family that were, they were elders in our church. And they were, they had so many boys. They had like eight boys or something, you know, just from grown age all the way down to, I think Gideon was the youngest at the time. And, you know, I remember playing with him. And then I was in the car with my dad. He got a call later on that day. They said, hey, Gideon's not feeling well. We're taking him to the hospital took him to the hospital and they diagnosed him. They said, I, we think your son has a, a tumor. And, you know, the we, we prayed, we were around the family. And by Saturday, he was a vegetable. Whoa. No brain function, no brain responses. And he died a couple of days later. And the his father, he said, hey, I want you to pray at the funeral. Mm. And I, I'm sitting back here saying, how or what do you mean? I've never been a part of a funeral before. You want me to pray at this young man's funeral? And I, I was just expecting a distraught, heavy cloud. And I was expecting, and it was a tough funeral. It was a difficult funeral. Yep. He was only seven years old. Yep. But what I was expecting was not validated. It was the complete opposite. It was so much hopeful joy. It was so much call and response. It was so much encouragement. It was so much uplift. And I looked at the parents and I looked at the family and I said, where does this come from? I know I believe in, in Jesus and I believe in the gospel and I believe in these points, but man, where does that come from? Where yeah. does the ability to endure suffering, where does the ability to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Where, where does that come from? It was something different. There was something different on the inside of them. And, you know, again, they didn't grieve perfectly and they didn't grieve, you know, like it's a handbook and, and they had their struggles too and they had their sin too. But it was just the way in which they did that and the way in which the community of faith rallied around them in vocal, expressive, joyful, started it with praise songs, started the funeral wow. with praise. What sense? Wow. What is there to praise God about? And it was that they knew a deeper reality. They, they knew the transcendent savior. And that to me, that endurance, that perseverance, that that Judy Scott that says, hey, I saw my son get killed and the jury didn't give us a verdict that we would like and the, the right verdict, but it's not over yet. Mm. It's not over until God says it's over. I don't feel no ways tired. <laughs> you mm. know, it's those yeah. simple phrases that come from the overflow of the gospel, the overflow of being saturated and cemented within the scriptures. And that is the legacy of the black church. That's where I'm getting my 
my my hope and my confidence from it is that example. Now, obviously, we we recognize that the black church is not perfect. There are things that can be improved. There are emphasis in different areas that we would say maybe there's there's too much of an overemphasis here. Maybe there's underemphasis there. It's not a perfect institution. It's not a superior institution, but it is an important institution. And and when I'm around the body of believers, I look around and I see these stories and I hear I see these faces and I hear these stories and I remember these experiences and it keeps me going, man. It is the safe haven in the midst of tumultuous times. And uh, so I'm thankful for the black church, man. Don't give up on it, y'all. Don't give up. (laughs) Well, if 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 everyone else gives up, that's for me and my house. (laughs) We will serve the Lord and the God. God is not. And God has not given up on us. And that's the good news. So, man, we got a whole bunch more topics to talk about. I'm I'm, I'm going to hit you up right after this. This this has sparked so many more ideas. Um, I think I think folks need to hear more conversations like these. Thanks, man. Man, thank you so much, Jamar. Thank you guys for listening in today on Pastor Mike. We want you to follow us on Facebook. You can follow us at RAN Network. Follow the RAN Network page. Like it. We have about, I think, over 11,000 people who have liked the RAN Network Facebook page. You can also join the private Pastor Mike Facebook group by looking it up on Facebook. Pastor Mike, a phenomenal cross-generational, cross-denominational group talking about racial justice and reconciliation from a Christian perspective and lens. You should get on that. Then also continue to rate and review us on iTunes. Also, you can download us on the Satchel app as well. We really want you guys to do that to support our producer, Bo York, and his phenomenal work with the Satchel app. And we also want you guys to continue to give us feedback. Please give us feedback. Tell us what you would like to hear, who you would like to hear on the podcast. Big things coming in 2017. You are not ready for the things that are coming in 2017. <laughs> and Jamar's laughing because he knows what I'm talking about, guys. We have some great things in the works. So continue to look out for that. And we will see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.